Good day, listeners. Welcome back to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. I'm your host, Bill McBride, here with my partner and colleague, good friend, Andrew Martz. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing fantastic. Andrew, I know you've been waiting for this one. We are going to go over my catchphrase of the, the new millennium, uh, the Krispy Kreme effect. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> so we did, have, you, did you bring donuts for this episode? I, you know what? I thought about it, but there's such a line out of Krispy Kreme, and we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so for this episode, I want to have a little fun with some market history, the usual philosophical waxings, and the legacy of this coined phrase that I've been using for oh, almost 20 years now. So... <laughs> It's a wonderful alliterative <laughs> mixture of science, investments, and donuts. The Krispy Kreme effect. Back in 2000, when Krispy Kreme donuts went public, there was a lot of hype. Uh, I was relatively new to the business, and I saw many a client come to me and say, Bill, I want Krispy Kreme donut. I want to buy stock in Krispy Kreme. And I said, well, well why? And they said, well, because I see a line around the block. And I said, you know, a little bit younger in those days, I went, well, that kind of makes sense. They must be doing good business. We saw Krispy Kreme uh, go public in July of 2000, I believe it was. Uh, had a meteoric rise uh, as all the hype and people caught up with the hype. And within a few years, it was around $50 a share from uh, an opening price. I think it was about $32 it, it opened at. The IPO price was uh, $21. The meteoric rise then gave way to the fall of Krispy Kreme donuts. And why? Well, they saturated the market. Uh, all the money pouring into the stock, pouring into the company, gave them the ability to expand and, the, and they just, they saturated the market and started uh, losing the exclusivity of Krispy Kreme. They put it in grocery stores, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, what's the Krispy Kreme effect? Why, why do I call it this? And, and, and really it's, it's a larger conversation that we're going to have today, which is about investor optics, right? The average do-it-yourself investor says to themselves, hey, I was in line at Sears today. I was in line at Starbucks today. I was in line at Krispy Kreme today. And that place was busy. I'm going to buy that company. That company's doing great. Is the company doing great, right? If you're selling a dozen donuts for five bucks, you can make, you can make good money at that and you could have a profitable company, but it doesn't mean that the company's back office or corporate headquarters is really running the company in an efficient manner that's going to be profitable for you as a shareholder, right? So going back, Andrew, you've heard me talk about the Krispy Kreme effect. And, you know, I think it's a rather simple concept. So can we, can we go back? You were um, early 2000s, late 90s. You were in Los Angeles. Correct. I was in New York at the time. Um, Krispy Kreme wasn't popular in New York. 
No. No, I, I don't I, think it was. I don't think it was popular here because let's set the record straight. America runs on Duncan. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, I'm a Philly guy. I know Duncan. So <laughs> time to make the donuts. So in 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 the late '90s, early 2000s, Krispy Kremes everywhere in in Los Angeles and well, obviously it, different parts of the country. Was it was it crazy? Because well, Krispy Kreme seems to be still popular today, but I, I feel like it's not as popular as it once was. Well. It, it was an odd thing, and, and I, I liken it to the um, you know the Popeyes chicken sandwich. Now, like there wasn't there wasn't like a Krispy Kreme on every corner. It wasn't it didn't have the Starbucks effect, right? Mm -hmm. It it was kind of exclusive. You had to go to you know I think for living in the South Bay, I had to go to you know the, the four hundred five, and there there was one every you know fifteen miles or so. Okay. Um, I, 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 there's some numbers. I think we, we've got them listed here where it's, there was 200 or so across the country. Right. So I mean, it grew to almost 400 locations as they started to peak. Right. Right. And, and there's their downfall was expanding and, you know, we'll get into you know, why that, but it, it wasn't a, um, well, let's for a second, let's focus on the donut here. Yeah. Cause Krispy Kreme, this is, this is in the March household Saturday morning ritual. We go to Krispy Kreme donut. Do you really? Without fail. <laughs> My son, my son orders, we get a dozen donuts, half glazed, half chocolate frosted. My son will only, and all the parents will get this. He only eats the chocolate frosting. He doesn't eat the donut. Just eats chocolate frosting off the top of the donut, throws the rest of the donut away. Smart. Or he gives it to me. Dada, you eat the donut. I don't want your half eaten donut. <laughs> Personally, I'm a glazed man. Smart kid. I actually didn't know until a few years ago that Krispy Kreme had anything other than glazed donuts. Yeah. They got the whole, they got the whole lineup. Yeah. Um, yes. So, so, okay, we've established the donuts. The second thing I want to just quickly touch on is why companies go public in the first place. Getting access to the public markets for a company, an, an IPO, an initial public offering, is a way for a company to raise more capital, right? So there, there's a number of ways that you can raise capital. You can raise it privately in the private markets, which can be very difficult or expensive. Uh, you can borrow money, right? You can get bank loans. You can issue other forms of debt or to get a lot of access to a lot of capital and very quickly you you look to go public in the markets. So Krispy Kreme is having this this success, this meteoric rise. They're opening more locations, there's lines uh, out the doors and they decide, "Hey, we're going to go public." The obvious result here is like we need more capital to open more locations. Right. But Krispy Kreme is a franchise model. Exactly. Right. Each franchisee, each location is owned by an individual or a group of individuals or a family. Right. And that's what happened, right? They didn't care about the franchise, the franchisee. They cared about the, the company. And that was, that was another element of their downfall, right? Because if you've got Mr. Jones that has a Krispy Kreme that's been there for 20 years and now they're public and Mr. Smith opens one two blocks away, the company is still getting their money, but one of those stores is going to close because one of those franchisees can't can't handle half the business. Yeah, and I think this was, you know, this probably speaks to corporate culture during the 90s, early 2000s, yeah. which was shareholder profit first, stakeholder, you know, consciousness, stakeholder profit second. And when it comes to the shareholders of a company that's going public for the first time, who's the majority shareholder? 
the executives, the, 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 the leadership team, the management. So they are the ones who are sure. positioned to make the most money. Right. The problem with that is too oftentimes you are, you are making decisions for quick profits in spite of what the long-term impact on the business model is going to be. Well, absolutely. Well, it was a gold rush, right? So it, this was on the heels of the tech boom when they went public, everybody was making money. Right. Everybody. I mean, I remember investing in drcoop.com. So C. Everett Coop was the attorney general at the time, and he came out with a website and took it public. And it was, you know, money was just pouring in. And that, and that's it. And, and we're getting back to the to the point, right, where uh, well, the point we are, are making after the Krispy Kreme effect is that people want to get in with what they see and what they feel they're missing out on. Mm -hmm. So later in the investor sales cycle, so 96, 97, 98, 99, great years in the market. And this was the tech boom. Krispy Kreme goes public in, in 2000. Nobody knew in March of 2000 that that was the end of the tech boom, mm -hmm. right? Nobody knew that we we're gonna face three years of negative 20% returns in the market. So they were still on the heels and still in that spot where greed was greed was good, right? Right. Now, 2016, or um, now, uh, three years ago in 2016, uh, Krispy Kreme uh, was bought out by, by another company. And they were at one point a dollar a share, right? When was that? Dollar a share was, I want to say 2009, 10? Yeah, post- post-recession, post-crisis. Right. Yep. So, you know, they, they took a dive and, you know, there's still Krispy Kremes. Obviously you go there every Sunday, right? So th they're still around. Um, but I, I think the point of this podcast is to convey to the people listening, what are you looking at? And why do you think that that's a good investment? Because what you see seems to be good to you. Right. Right. And, and we hear it all too often. Right. And it goes, it translates to every company, right? Because we all use all the products in the market. There's an end user somewhere, right? So whether it's a, a retail food establishment like Krispy Kreme or, you know, Home Depot or a, a cement manufacturer, we're all using that at some point. Now there's the antithetical argument where McDonald's and Coca-Cola right? Hey, Bill, I see people at McDonald's all day long, right? Yeah. McDonald's is a good company. What's the difference between Krispy Kreme and McDonald's, right? They both have lines out the door and the investor is looking at both of them and going, that's a good investment. Either one, take your pick. And the difference is fundamentals, right? So fundamentals are really what we need to look at as investors when we're purchasing a stock. So let's look at that real quick. The fundamentals of McDonald's versus Krispy Kreme. You know, to be to be a franchisee owner of a McDonald's location, I mean, first of all, your minimum investment is going to be at least a million dollars. Right. You are looking at potential buyers of a of a location or a franchise to be one, what we would call an accredited investor or somebody who has the means and the wherewithal to understand business operations. McDonald's also does a tremendous amount of due diligence before they allow any locations to be open. They know the demographics, they know the competitors, they know, they know, they even know the cost of real estate so that they can create an environment that 
is conducive to their brand because really when you're a franchise owner, you're all you're doing is you're buying into that brand, right? Right. So they're doing the marketing, they're doing the advertising They're You're going to, you know, on some, you know, level, get people walking through your door. A, a franchise owner is buying into a piece of something much larger than themselves. But what it seems like in the Krispy Kreme example is that Krispy Kreme was opening locations because they saw their franchisees as the opportunity to make money, not the people who were actually walking through the door. Exactly. Not the, not the customers, not the people buying donuts and coffees and and all the rest of their, their products. Right. So you're driving by as an investor or you're going to Krispy Kreme every Sunday morning. And back in 2000, 2001, 2002, you look at the stock page and you see Krispy Kreme stock rising, that's a natural thing. And what, what I want to convey is even though it's a natural thing, doesn't mean it's right or doesn't mean it's correct or doesn't mean it's sound investment practice, right? Uh, we all too often hear people, why did you buy that stock? Well, you got the Krispy Kreme effect. They say, I saw a line out the door or it's, I had a hunch. Something just tells me I've seen it with my own two eyes. I've been pretty spot on so far. Now, this is the one that, that I love because for the past 10 years, I've been pretty spot on for the past 10 years, Bill. You know, I think I'm going to keep going with my gut. Really? Because you could have thrown money out the window. It would have blown back in with 10% interest. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, you know, and that's been great, right? I will take another 100 years like this for sure. But you ever see the, 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 the Harvard study with the chimpanzee and the, the hedge fund manager? I've heard about that one. Tell me again. So essentially they take a a Wall Street hedge fund manager and they took a chimpanzee (laughs) and they opened up the, you know, the stock page on the, in the Wall Street Journal. That was in the nineties, I believe though. It was. Yeah. Yeah, This is, this is back 20, maybe even 30 years ago at this point. And you know, the, this hedge fund manager uses all his tools and resources and analytics to build a portfolio. And the chimpanzee pointed at stocks and on the fourth page of the journal. Yeah. I mean, sitting here 30 years later, guess who won? Exactly. The chimp. Right. right. Uh, much simpler times. I'm telling you, you know, back in the nineties in the, that tech boom, we were buying Pokemon stock. I remember when that came out, it was a company called a uh, play by play sports. And it was just, you know, a dollar in the morning, 12 bucks in the afternoon. <laughs> it was insane. But uh, those, you know, I don't think we'll ever see times like that again. Right. Where, a monkey could point to the stock page and, and, and beat an active manager that's using fundamentals. Well, we're getting back into the active versus passive, sure. right? They couldn't beat a third of active managers, right? right. But certainly a right. monkey could beat, could beat two, uh, two thirds maybe. Um, so getting back on track, I, I, I think another great example here is um, what we use every day, right? We were talking about Visa and MasterCard, but Samsung versus Apple, uh, I hear a lot of people say, hey, you know, well, I've got a Samsung phone and I like it and, you know, it, it works for me and it's a great product. And I think people are going to really get, you know, when Steve Jobs passes away, uh, when, you know, earnings come out or all these what we call headline risk things, right? Mm-hmm. When this happens, then it's going to be the fall of Apple, right? When we know we've gotten into the fundamentals of, of Apple and Yes, it's prevalent in our lives and, and some of us use it every day. So the optics of it as an investor are very good. It negates the Krispy Kreme effect, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're going, hey, you know what? I see a line at the Apple store. 
Apple is a good, a good, good company to buy, and it is. But Samsung, right? We see they've got some good products, and they come out with these things, and then all of a sudden, we're looking at Samsung and going, "Hey, well, this is this might take over Apple," and it hasn't. And right. why? And why? I mean, I would argue that Apple is just a you know better run company. It's got it's got a better marketing strategy. It's got better products. It's got more innovation. So essentially, we're coming down to it's got better fundamentals. Right, right. So there, there's also um, another analogy with the gas stations. Uh, when we look at gas prices, you know, a lot of us have investor, uh, as investors will look at gas prices and we'll see uh, higher prices and we'll say, hey, you know what? Gas prices are so high and I'm not going to buy a Chevron or Exxon Mobil, right? Or I'm at the gas station in Beverly Hills and I see it's 5.50 a gallon and nobody's there, so I'm not buying oil stocks right now. But what we don't realize is the supply and demand of it all. And again, this goes back to pouring over the books, looking at balance sheets and fundamentals and getting into what is really driving a company's profits and what makes it a good investment. And it, it's just, you know, I, I think the, the, my whole point is don't believe your eyes. Okay. So if I'm an investor, if I'm, if I'm out there right now and I want to, I want to take a look at and take a crack at buying some stocks, where do I start? Great question. Where would you, where would you tell your clients to start? Well, I think that the most obvious is stick with things that you know. So I would say you want to focus on companies, stocks that you understand, whether that's an industry that you work in, whether these are things that you are familiar and you use every day. The, the problem is that you can't just rely on the lines out the door solely, right? So the Krispy Kreme effect, if, if, my, if the beginning and end of my analysis is Krispy Kreme is is packed. There's lines. It takes 30 minutes for me just to get my dozen donuts in the morning. Uh, that's probably not a sound investment thesis, but if, if the, if the starting point is, Hey, I use this. A lot of my friends are using this. Hey, I, I shop there. A lot of my friends are shopping there. Maybe I should take a, a deeper dive into something like this. That's what I would probably recommend to somebody is say, start with what you know, what you don't want to do is in my opinion, you don't want to start, you know, saying, "Hey, I heard biotech companies can really be high flyers." I, I don't, I can't even spell biotech, but I'm going to go find this company that's somebody said is going to go much higher. Right, but the what you know contention is rife with an inherent danger, which is a favoritism for what you know. Right? If I like Starbucks and I eat or drink a Starbucks coffee every day, and I go into looking at the balance sheet of Starbucks, looking at the PE ratio, understanding what a PE ratio is, understanding what makes it a good company to buy, I am inherently geared towards buying that company. I have a favoritism to that because it's what I know and what I like. Now, there social psychologists would call that the confirmation bias. I'm searching for research to prove what I've already believed to be true in my head. Where'd you learn that? I don't know. That's I read good. a book probably. That's good. In a book. <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Confirmation bias. I think I've heard that somewhere. All right. So at the end of the day, 
what do you do to to get started in investing and not get caught in the Krispy Kreme effects? Yes. Not, not get glazed? Wow. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> 19 minutes into this podcast, how long have you been holding on to that one? <laughs> that came out right now, I swear to God. It was, it was on the spot. <laughs> Felt natural. <laughs> So, you know, I guess what we're saying, do your research, but do it like a scientist, right? Go into the lab, pour over the financials and don't look at one of your lab rats and say, oh, he looks sick, right? It, it, it's really a, a, a deeper dive that's required. I love it. All right. For Dollars and Sensibilities, I'm Bill McBride. I'm Andrew Martz. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.